Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. If you're one of our many new listeners, I wanted to thank you for tuning in. Every week, a lot of work goes into producing this podcast for you, and I would love to hear from you. If you want to reach out to me with suggested guests or topics, if you want to let me know what you like about the show, or if you just have general feedback, you can reach me at actinline at actin.org. Now for a look at what this episode features. On the first segment, we'll be discussing the First Step Act a federal prison reform bill signed into law in December 2018. As a result of the First Step Act, more than 2,200 federal inmates will be returning home on July 19 due to earned good time. Criminal justice reform advocate Mark Holden joins me on this episode to discuss the First Step Act and explains what reforms we should make in the future. After that, we take a look at Nick v. Township of Scott, a case that was before the Supreme Court this year. On this segment, we take a look at the ruling and the implications that it has for property rights. If you want to learn more about the topics in this episode, I've linked all the articles, videos, and more in the show notes. And those are posted every Wednesday when our episodes release at blog.acton.org. Today, my guest is Mark Holden. He is the Senior Vice President of Coke Industries, Senior Vice President of Stand Together, and is a board member of Americans for Prosperity. Mark, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Today, we are discussing criminal justice reform, which you have been a longtime advocate for. And we're talking specifically about the First Step Act, which you have called the biggest justice reform victory in a generation. It is a bipartisan bill signed into law December 21, 2018. And when that bill was still being voted on, actually, we released a podcast episode to map out the basics of the bill. And I will link that episode in our show notes for listeners. But for those who don't know much about the bill, what were what are the main objectives of the First Step Act? Well, the First Step Act is based on a lot of reforms that have worked in the states over the past 10 to 15 years. One of the it has two major parts. The first is prison reform, and the whole idea behind that is that instead of just warehousing people, we should be focused on rehabilitation and reformation so people who are in prison come out of prison better than they went in, don't commit more crimes. Instead, while in prison, they get rehabilitated, whether it's drug treatment or they get skills and there'll be education programs, life skills programs. So the individual, when they come out, are less violent, less troubled, more productive. There's also components in the First Step Act regarding what they call the 500-mile rule, that an individual uh, should not be placed more than 500 miles from their home where they grew up or where, where they live. So that, that's one half of it. The other half deals with sentencing reform. And so there are reforms to four federal laws uh, that make those laws more just and more proportional for people. So overall, there's a good package across the board, both from the prison reform side and the sentencing reform. And ultimately, that, that made it all the way through the goal line. On December 21st, I was in the Oval Office when the president signed it into law, and which was a great day. And then two hours later, after he signed it, the uh, federal government closed down. 
Now, the Congressional Budget Office reported that some 53,000 of the 181,000 inmates currently imprisoned in the federal system in the U.S. would be affected by the First Step Act over the next 10 years. Have we seen the reforms laid out take effect yet? What, To my knowledge, it seemed that when Congress passed this bill that they expected to see take effect almost immediately after, but it, it doesn't seem like that's happened quite yet. Can, can you explain that for me? Yeah, they, well, the whole idea was for some of the, um, uh, for the earned time credits, people were supposed to get the benefit of that right away. Every year, and they, they did the right thing. They get, they get 54 days off. But BOP, the Bureau of Prisons, changed that to 47 days over the years. And so in the First Step Act, Congress and the Senate said, we meant 54 days. And the whole idea was that people would be coming out soon as the bill was signed. However, when the bill was put into law, they put it in the wrong section. So that uh, held up that issue from happening, from people being released. Those are the 2,200 or so people who are going to be coming out in a couple of weeks here. So you mentioned risk assessment earlier. What exactly is that? Can you explain that to me? Because it it plays a role in this conversation as well. Along with the 2,200 prisoners to be released on July 19, there is also some sort of risk assessment tool due on that day. Is that correct? Well, what it means is there's going to be minimal risk, low risk, medium risk, or or high risk. And that's going to be an assessment that's made with a tool uh, when they're going to do the needs assessment and the risk assessment for each individual to make sure they get them in the right category so they can have access to the different programs based on that. Is 2,200 considered a high number? Well, let's take a step back. Every week in this country, 10,000 people return to society from either the federal system and the state systems. So this 2,200 is just a sliver of that, quite frankly. So what these individuals are going to be all different types of risk um, levels from minimal to low to medium to more serious. Now, they've known for a while, though, that they're getting out. So hopefully they've been getting some training and getting ready so they can hit the ground running when they return to their communities. The First Step Act is obviously, it's just one bill. It's called the First Step for a reason. What other reforms or steps would you like to see take place in criminal justice? I mean, there's so many. I think the first, it's going to be just getting the First Step Act implemented. And it, it's, as you said, it's a first step, but it's the first time in the history of the federal system that we've made, we've had a law passed that makes the system less punitive and more restorative, more redemptive. So that's a big deal and helps rehabilitate people at the federal level. So what we'd like to see, a number of different things. We think that one is we obviously, beyond um, implementing the First Step Act, we also want to see things like expungement for low-level nonviolent drug offenders at the federal level in particular. We think in this day and age with marijuana, for example, is legal or decriminalized in almost 35, 40 states. I forget the exact numbers. But it's the same that that people who have a criminal record based on marijuana possession, assuming they have no other serious offenses, they should have their, they they should have that expunged so they don't have a felony criminal record. I mean, as you know, a felony record, any record, felony or a, a misdemeanor record could have impacts on your ability to get jobs, housing, education loans, licenses, et cetera. So we'd like to see more of that. We'd also like to see 
I mean, there's things around asset forfeiture. We'd like to see that change. The whole idea that the law enforcement can take your information without an arrest sometimes, without a conviction, without an indictment, and then you have to sue to get it back. We think that's unconstitutional and, and we unfortunately puts law enforcement at risk. So we'd, we'd like to make sure that law enforcement has a tough enough job as it is. We can, we can help them to be parts of their communities. Um, and, and, and doing the right thing in the communities and not having to put out fines and fees and tickets to people, things of that nature. They want to be a positive part of the community, and they generally are, but we don't make it easy for them with these, these programs that they have to take part in. We also would like to see reentry reform, so collateral consequences to a criminal conviction. There are over or almost 50,000 collateral consequences to a criminal conviction in this country that keep people from getting jobs and housing and loans and licenses, all the things that people need to get their lives back together. And it's a major driver of recidivism, why people end up in prison because they can't get jobs and can't get housing. So we'd like to see those reformed consistent with public safety, of course. There may be reasons to keep people from certain jobs and certain housing issues. But by and large, we think that once someone pays their debt to society, they should get their rights back and get a real second chance. And we don't always do that in this country. In a piece that you published earlier this year titled The Conservative Case for Reform, Equal Rights, Public Safety and Redemption, you say that, quote, you believe this issue can transcend politics and unite everyone, even those who share little else in common toward a higher purpose. So what is it about this issue that you think draws such bipartisan support? Because it impacts everybody, and it's it's an issue that over the past 40 years, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, both parties have shame on them for what they did, how they handled this issue, from the Willie Horton era to the Clinton crime bill era. And I think that everybody has a fundamental belief in our injustice and freedom, and it just speaks to people when you have a, a system that... We need, obviously, we need our criminal justice system to work. So we, we, we protect public safety, as we mentioned earlier, equal rights, equal justice, but we need to have a redemptive system. I mean, if you look at the Bill of Rights, for example, our founding documents, 40% of the Bill of Rights deals with criminal justice issues, the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendments. And so the founders were telling us that the greatest threat to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in our country was going to come through the criminal justice system. And they've been right. I mean, for years, it's a two-term, it's a two-tiered system where the rich and guilty, as Brian Stevenson says, get a better deal than the poor and innocent. And if you don't have resources, you're going to get run over. What we're doing now is going to make us safer because it's based on the whole idea of rehabilitating people, not just punishing them. And a lot of the people who end up in the system have been punished their whole lives. That doesn't excuse anything that they've done, but at the same time, you need to give them an alternative to what they've done in the past. So an education, a skill, drug therapy. And so left and right, while we talk about the issues differently, we all believe fundamentally in justice. And we all see that the injustice in this system and have come together to address it. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. The American dream is fading away in much of the country, and the problem isn't pure economics, nor is it a case of stubborn old white men falling behind because they refuse to embrace progress. The root cause of our problems 
crumbling families and political dysfunction is the erosion of community and local civil institutions, most especially the church. The result of a secularizing country is a plague of alienation for the working class, as many people struggle to build families and improve their lives without the support structure they need. Join us at the Penn Brewery in Pittsburgh on August 1st to hear Tim Carney, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of Alienated America, speak on secularization and alienation in America. Get your ticket at acton.org events. This is Trey Dimsdale. Uh, thank you for joining us on Acton Line today. We have a special guest, Dr. Pat Gary, who serves as professor of law at the University of South Dakota's School of Law. He's a constitutional scholar and teaches courses there in constitutional law uh, and administrative law. Uh, Dr. Gary, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Trey. It's good to be with you. So um, this Supreme Court term has uh, had three different cases that um, that have the potential to to be landmark cases. We'll sort of see how things play out over the next five to ten years. Um, and we've done podcasts uh, that have episodes that have focused on two of those cases, but now the third, uh, Nick v. Township of Scott, was handed down just a couple of weeks ago, and deals with uh, the Fifth Amendment's um, takings clause. And so this is something that, uh, you know, strikes at the heart of one of the Acton Institute's priorities um, and a, an area of interest for our, for our research staff and for our, 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 our programmatic calendar, and that's uh, with regard to property rights. So, um, Pat, do you think you could uh, just briefly describe to us what it is that, uh, that a taking is, both in, both in common law and then how that sort of evolved into or migrated into the American system Sure. Well, a taking would be when the government then somehow uh, really takes your property. They usually do it through some type of condemnation process, taking it. We, we probably think of it in terms of like maybe I, I own a large tract of land. The city decides to build a road through it or expand a road. And to do that, they're going to they're gonna have to you know, take my property to do it. Um, the Constitution gives government the right to do that, but it uh, also puts a lot of conditions on it. So this really reaches back, of course, to the framing of the Constitution. And and the framers were very well aware of that, a problem that, for instance, the English government would simply take private property. Um, And government, uh, this was a long line of history in which government uh, was really more powerful than the individual. And so if the government wanted property, the government would take private property for the government's, the state's usage, and and the individual would have little uh, recourse to do that. And and the framers really saw property as a fundamental right, as a very important right. It's kind of a linchpin of our system that would uh, empower individuals to, to, you know, possess a certain amount of liberty and freedom from the state. And so the framers put in the Fifth Amendment this takings clause, which forbids the government from taking property for a public use without giving just compensation. And so there's a lot of different um, elements in there. But it really comes down to the fundamental notion that that the Fifth Amendment, I think, uh, 
we, we don't pay a lot of attention to it, but oftentimes it really gives us a, a, a very important statement about the relationship between the individual and the state. And the state doesn't own property. The state doesn't can't control property, can't ignore individuals' property rights. Private property is a fundamental uh, pillar of our of our economy and our society. And once the private property is owned privately, the government cannot just take it. Now, there obviously has to be times when the government has to acquire property, like when you build a highway. Well, you're going to that that highway has to be built. Um, and and the uh, the Fifth Amendment then allows the government to take it, but only after it pays just compensation to the private property owner. So the Nick case that we'll get to kind of some of the specifics here in just a moment is is really sort of a, a technical uh, procedural case. Um, but to kind of get some background on that, um, let's talk a little bit more about these two prongs, the constitutional requirement, the public use and the just compensation. Just compensation is fairly straightforward um, and there's 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 probably there's, there's 51, you know, 50 states plus the, you know, the federal system uh, that have um, have have different types of formulas for, for determining just compensation. Um, and that has certainly been litigated, but it isn't really where the action has been in the last generation. The public use prong has been one that's been a little bit more controversial, and um, and and there there is a you know Kilo v New London that came out 15 years ago or so, um, you know, kind of dealt with that most recently. You, can you talk a little bit about the the public use doctrine and how this how this has sort of evolved over time, and how how the d- definition of a public use is, has evolved and expanded? Sure. So. Um you're right. There's two prongs to just compensation, which is really just a way of valuing property, and 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 that's both straightforward. Um, but there always questions of valuation there. But the the more interesting aspect, like you brought out, was public use. So the F- Fifth Amendment says that government can only take property for a public use after paying just compensation. So what's a public use? The most simple um, and traditional definition has been things like a, a road, for instance. Uh, you know, when the when the freeway system was built uh, across the country, uh, a, a tremendous amount of property had to be acquired to do that, and that had to be acquired from individuals. Um, and it went so you would go through a, a a public condemnation process in which the government would take that but pay just compensation. And the public use was obvious; it was for a highway system. So that's the most traditional notion of public use. But you mentioned the Kilo case, so that really kind of threw a wrench into things. And there, and correct me if I'm wrong, Trey, on on the facts of that case, but it was a very controversial case. And there a a city decides to take land so as to um, facilitate a economic development. I think Pfizer was one of the um, main tenants of that, wasn't it? Right, right. Pfizer Corporation. and it was to basically for a um, – anyway, the homes of, of, of working class and middle class citizens were taken for this, like, private development, you know, like how government oftentimes do this. It wants to – maybe wants to attract a business, and so it wants to get property and, um, and uh, make it available to real estate developers. And they want to, they want to change, like, what happened in 
the city of New London and the Kilo cases, they just they kind of wanted to upgrade this property. They wanted to change it from a a, a, uh, a working and middle class residential area to a commercial and um, and industrial development. Um, citizens brought suit and uh, they lost uh, in the case. But the question became: Is what's a public use? And I think that's a, it was a very uh, important issue because. Is is an economic developer development where you're really just um, kind of handing this property over to some private economic developer? Is that a public use? Many people argue that's not a public use. That's just favoring one group of citizens over another. And one of the dangers I think of government being involved in in different aspects is that that so often we we use the term cronyism. They they favor they want to take from one group of people these these um, working and middle-class homes, and then give it over to a, a, an economic developer that, that, that's going to do something different with the property. So that's an issue that we see many times in terms of what is a public use. Now, even though this, the, um, the, the challengers um, didn't prevail in Kilo, it sparked such a national controversy that many states then adopted different laws and, and state constitutional requirements saying, you know, the, forbidding that kind of, of, um, of development. But we look at that and we, we really see, and I think, too, it, it, it shows so often that, um, that the people who oftentimes get hurt in these kinds of situations, even though sometimes the, 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 uh, the, the proponents of government action oftentimes want to use the word property as being something that only rich people have. It, whenever you see these cases, inevitably, I'd say, it's working class and middle class individuals who are getting their property taken away from them. Very rarely do rich and wealthy people go to court for this because oftentimes they have the political power to influence their local governments that, they don't, that doesn't happen to them. Right, right. Um, but anyway, without getting too far afield, yeah, I think public use is a requirement under the Fifth Amendment. But now, after the in the wake of the Kilo case, we kind of there's a lot of issues about what really is a public use. Right, and and, and the Kilo case kind of expanded the 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 actual constitutional language says public use. But what's what's ultimately resulted from Kilo is it's almost public benefit at this point because the argument coming from um, from the state was that this new development was going to increase the tax base, so they could they could collect uh, property tax on middle class homes um, or small businesses, but by having uh, having uh, Pfizer Corporation move in there, they all of a sudden have higher paying jobs that can be taxed. They have um, they have uh, more expensive homes, more expensive development that's going to result in a, in, a, in a more robust and deeper tax base. And so, um, so that, that ended up, you know, obviously meeting with a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of public resistance. And an interesting side note to that case is that Justice Stevens wrote the opinion of the court for that, but he was joined by Justice Souter. From New Hampshire, and Justice Souter actually faced uh, a uh, back in his home state of New Hampshire faced a, a, a movement by uh, pro property rights citizens to attempt to um, 
condemn his home <laughs> to, uh, to be used for, uh, you know, for the land to be used for um, for some sort of public benefit and expanding the tax base. But it never actually went anywhere. It's just an interesting side note on that. So, yeah, um, but nonetheless, it kind of highlights. That's a good point. I, I had forgotten that, but that's a good, I think, description of that case is that it really was the public benefit. It's like, and and then if you accept that court's notion of public benefit, then there's no boundaries on the government because the government can really say, you know, something, you know, that piece of property, we, we could get higher taxes doing something else. Or maybe, maybe it, we just, if we rip down that house, uh, we can turn it into a park and uh, it'll improve the property values around it. So yeah, that's a good point. Right, right. So, um, the, this this case that that uh, the the court considered um, in in, uh, in this particular term Nick v Township of uh, Township of Scott doesn't deal with public use it doesn't deal with just compensation it deals with how it is that a property owner um, avails themselves of remedies uh, that are provided under law and you know in theory under the Constitution. And so I don't know if – could you uh, could you explain a little bit of, of, of what Nick has done um, with regard to um, to shoring up, uh, you know, some of the, the available remedies to uh, property owners whose, whose property is uh, subject to condemnation action? Sure. And, and you're right, Trey. If, I think if you look at first glance um, at this case, uh, at the Nick case, you think, well, what's the big deal? Basically what it says is that – if you have a claim, a takings claim, if you have a claim that your government has taken your property without without just compensation, what Nick says is you can go to the federal court right away to seek um, redress rather than having to go to the state court first. That's all it says. And so it seems like, well, what's the big deal? There is a pretty big deal. And, and, and this is why I think it is, is because Given precedence before, what the court has said is that if you have a takings claim, you have to first go to the state court and go through all of that before you go to the federal court. So obviously there's a lot of costs and burdens on a, on a property owner to have to go through one sort of whole judicial level before going up to the other one. Later cases then have kind of said yes, but then once you go through the state process and once they reach the, um, their, their decision, then that's kind of like race judicata. That, that means the, 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 the matter has been settled. So in other words, there's no point to go to federal court, and then there's, there's actually no justification for going to federal court because the matter has been settled. Okay, so that seems very procedural, but it's, it's, it's important when you look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that the takings clause appears in the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The Fifth Amendment is part of the Bill of Rights, and the Bill of Rights has those different um, protections that we have, like in the First Amendment, protection of speech, protection of religious exercise. The Fourth Amendment is protection from unreasonable search and seizure, Because of U.S. statute, anyone with a constitutional claim, a constitutional violation, can go directly to federal court. They can, if I have a First Amendment claim against the government, I can take my case to federal court. I don't have to go through state courts. Then why is it that the Fifth Amendment was the only one that was different? And this is, I think, that what the the importance of Nick is. 
is that the courts have always treated property different. It's like you have all of these rights in the Bill of Rights, and the only one that gets treated in a kind of a second-class manner is property rights. Because there, you can't go to federal court. You have to go to state court. And you can actually get aced out of, of federal court, depending upon how the state court decides. So in a way, Nick reveals that why have we always treated property rights different? I mean, strangely enough, and this would probably take us way beyond this, uh, this podcast, but, you know, if you'd ask the framers what are the most important rights that, that this Constitution is granting to people, uh, the majority, I think, would say property rights. But because of constitutional changes like during the New Deal period and that sort of thing, the, 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 our constitutional law, I think, has really been kind of diverted away from property rights. So Nick, in a way, is a, like a small step, perhaps, for bringing property rights back into more of an equilibrium or balance with all the other rights outlined in the Bill of Rights. And so another question I have for you that um – you know, I, I don't know. I don't know an answer to, and uh, it, it may be something that just we have to see how it unfolds over time. But the case that that Nick actually overrules is a 1985 case, Williamson County versus Bank of Hamilton, and that's the Supreme Court precedent from 1985 that 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 burdens a property owner with exhausting state court remedies. The court in Williamson County. Uh, actually holds that the Fifth Amendment, the operation of the Fifth Amendment actually gives rise to a cause of action rather than a right to just compensation. So there, there's there's there, it's a it's a subtle it's a subtle difference there, but the but the difference being that now a property owner once property has been taken has the right to sue for just compensation and not a right to just compensation. And and so this is something that Nick is actually circling back around and saying, no, the, the, the operation of this particular provision of the Constitution gives rise to, to, to a right to just compensation. It, it, mm-hmm. the, the procedural aspects of how it is that just compensation is, is achieved is, is not addressed. Um, is this something that, um, you know, in, in your view as a, as a constitutional scholar, is this something that has has some um, Im- implications beyond simply property law or, ta- or takings claims? Is this understanding of the way um, that rights rise out of uh, out of the Constitution um, is 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 there an impact on that conceptually? Hmm, that's that's a good question. I mean, I I hadn't thought of that. Um, first of all, it was a, that's a, that's a good you know, uh, analysis of Williamson. And then to ask that question is kind of like, that. that's a much broader question. Um, and the first thing that comes to my mind kind of is that it, it, what you're asking maybe is the court somehow coming around to perhaps like a, a more of a, am I right in, in assuming this, Trey, like a more of a natural rights kind of uh, orientation a bit like like uh, uh, recognizing that as being the foundation of the of the Bill of Rights. Well, that that that's that's wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah, and, and that that 
that may be the uh, you know the um, you know the ideal. Um, but yeah, I mean, are we are we moving more in, in terms of uh, in, in a direction of kind of understanding um, fundamental rights, especially as they are protected in the Constitution, in a different way? I mean, are, are we are we likely to see uh, clever lawyers citing this particular approach to understanding the oper- the operation of um, of constitutional provisions in a different way? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, maybe so. In, in t- the other thing I think about as you ask the question is, is maybe we understand it, uh, understand rights more as like a true limitation on government. And the reason that they're a true limitation on government is that they protect um, something like natural rights, at least uh, something that that is is sort of fundamental to the individual. Uh, oftentimes, I think, and. and and the court kind of, you know, divides up on this. Like in, in Nick, we saw it's a 5-4 decision, and it, it divides on – it's one of these cases that divides on sort of like the, the, that, that expected dividing point, you know. If, if we call justice as liberal or a conservative, it, it kind of lines up perfect on the 5-4. to four. And we've seen a lot of decisions lately that, that mix it up a bit, you know, where some justices are – are going over, and and uh, some of the so-called conservative judges are voting with the liberal judges. But this is like a perfect five to four on expected grounds, and so that may tell us a lot too. And, and I mean, I, I think your question is fascinating. I'll be thinking about it long after we get off the phone here. But um, does it really, you know, reflect something deeper? It, it it really could. You know, I was thinking it just reflects something deeper in terms of the court's thinking on property and economic rights. But you could be right that that this, this might just come back to this notion that, that um, maybe we're going to look at the Bill of Rights more as a, like a true limitation on government, and it's a true limitation on government because it protects something that's prior to government. Well, maybe maybe we'll see a more expanded answer from you in, a, in an act and commentary coming up soon. <laughs> I better, better get busy on that. <laughs> right. So uh, we've reached the end of end of the time uh, for, uh, for this segment. Uh, Pat, thanks so much for uh, taking time to join us. It's been a pleasure to uh, chat with you about this. Thanks so much for your uh, your, your support for, for Acton. Well, it's been all my pleasure. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for listening today. If you're interested in learning more about the topics in today's show, I've linked all the articles, books, and more that were mentioned in the show notes, and those are published at blog.acton.org. Here at Acton, our podcast team is working hard to make a great show for you every week, but we couldn't do it without you. Help us make an even better podcast and reach us at actonline at acton.org. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.